Coming up today, we ask a simple question. Should we kill trillions of animals to save the planet and try and work out why Squid Game became such a runaway success? You're listening to the Wide UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tax, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are the entire gang. We've got Natasha Bernal. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hi. Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Koala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Apple said it would be dramatically cutting iPhone 13 production targets due to ongoing global computer chip shortages. Apple had hoped to produce 90 million iPhones in the last quarter of 2021, but has reportedly cut that by 10 million units. This is also the week that William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk on Star Trek, became the oldest person to go to space, or near enough, after launching on a Blue Origin rocket. He's 90 years old. And finally, this was the week when travellers were stranded as the NHS app stopped working. For around four hours, users were unable to prove their vaccination status, leaving them unable to board flights or enter certain venues. Now, there's a reason that all all of us are here for one week only, and we'll get onto that in just a minute. But first, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? I learned that whale flippers have arm, wrist and finger bones. So if you find yourself next to the skeleton of a whale you'll realise it looks surprisingly like a giant human hand, which is kind of a little bit disturbing. Why? I just, it's the wonderful mystery of evolution, James. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, yeah, they've got hands. So if they, only, if they only had little splits in their flippers, they could probably hold pens and do all kinds of interesting stuff. So there's like, there's a hidden hand in there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I imagine because whales are mammals... It must be a a holdover from, uh, you know, hands on land, which is a little bit easier. Although maybe our, maybe our listeners can Google this and tell me because I just know what they look like. I'm not exactly sure how whales. Someone will that have way. to get back to us. All right, Amit, what did you learn this week? I learned that the head of a snake can still independently bite and inject venom into people even after it's been decapitated. A Texas man was nearly killed in a headless snake attack when he went to retrieve the head of a rattlesnake that he'd killed with a shovel. Good. Too strong animal facts last week. No, no follow-up questions. Uh, so, the reason that all of us are here today... Vicky, it's, it's your last ever Wired podcast because it's your last ever day at Wired. But I have a question for you, Vicky. How many words have you written for Wired since you joined? <laughs> how many years ago? Um, I don't even know how many years it's been. Like, four or five? A good number. So we're going we're gonna to count your time with us in words. How many have you written? We can all have a guess here, but Vicky, you go first. I've got absolutely no idea. Um, 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 I've spent all week counting every single word you've written by hand, by the way. I'm going to say it's by hand. Yes. <laughs> One, two, three, four. <laughs> um, I reckon it's... I reckon it's going to be over 100,000, isn't it? Don't know. Well, they do, but I'm not telling you. Say a number. Um, 150,000. Okay. Um, would anyone else like to have a guess? That's not right. That might be too much. 500,000. 
that you've you've overshot it by a mile. Doesn't matter. Um, one, one more person, and we'll we'll see if anyone can get close. Matt Reynolds, yes. Well, I'm going to do that thing where you sneak in underneath. Mm. I I'm going to guess eighty thousand words. No, no, no. It's two hundred and five thousand nine hundred words. Wow. There we go. And I'm I'm sure you're all now wondering where does if if I want to rank all of us. Where does Vicky come in the Wired podcast team's ranking of words written for Wired? Uh, well, I, I won't make you guess. I'll just go through them right now. Uh, so Matt Burgess, you are way out in front on 925,945. Wow. So you're approaching a million words for Wired. Congratulations. Uh, next is me on 426,263. Matt Reynolds, you're next, 375,095. Amit, 205,519, so pretty much the same as Vicky. And then Natasha, I guess this is just a virtue of you having been here the shortest amount of time, yeah. 97,548. Now, I did. I pulled these numbers a couple of months ago, so Natasha, there's a good chance that you've gone over 100,000 in, in the interim time. Oh, and I didn't do anything I'd to I'd like celebrate. to point out as well that... Um, I'm not a massive slacker, but I, I do mainly edit other people's words rather than write my own. So that's my, uh, that's my excuse. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the massive spreadsheet I used to do this didn't account for editing. Uh, I'll get back to you on that, uh, but not on the podcast because you won't be here anymore. Anyway, uh, Vicky, it's been wonderful to have you with Wired and we will miss you very, very much. But you're not gone yet. One more story before you go. All about animals. Animals and death. What a good send off. Uh, yeah, farewell, everyone. Thanks for listening. Um, and uh, yeah, our first story, which I'm sp- speaking to Matt Reynolds about, uh, we've kind of talked about on this podcast before how meat is a big source of carbon emissions and that cutting down on meat and beef in particular is one thing that you can do as an individual to really reduce your personal carbon footprint. But there's a bit of a dark side to this, Matt. That's right. And the dark side is, is that maybe switching to low carbon meat means killing trillions of animals, which obviously not a great trade off. Now, I'll get into the subtleties of that in a moment, but probably we should start by saying the obvious thing, which is the best thing you could do if you do want to reduce your emissions is probably cut out meat altogether, right? If you don't eat uh, chicken or cows, you're probably not involved in killing those chickens or cows, so you can, you know, you can be happy about that. But... I don't think it's a particularly realistic um, assumption to say everyone's going to go vegan or everyone's going to go vegetarian. And really, you kind of see that in the data. So recent polls suggest that around 5% of adults in the UK and 3% in the US are vegetarian. And, you know, you probably have had this conversation with people in your own lives. A lot of people don't want to eliminate animal products completely, but they do want to cut back or they do want to reduce their emissions from uh, meat. So this brings us to this question of, if you're not going to cut out meat together, what can you do? And the answer is you can change the type of meat that you eat. So some types of meat are way, way worse for the environment than other ones. So we've talked about this before on the, on the podcast, but just to quickly go over the numbers, you know, per gram of protein, beef has around 10 times the carbon footprint of chicken and it uses 23 times as much farmland. If we're going to rank them in order, you've got beef and lamb at the top. They've got the highest carbon emissions. Pork has quite a lot less than them. Chicken is even lower. And some types of fish are even lower in terms of emissions. So there really is a a hierarchy of 
meet when it comes to their carbon emissions. So those numbers lead us to quite an obvious conclusion. If you want to keep eating meat, but you want to, you know, maybe reduce your emissions from your meat eating, then you should swap beef for chicken or fish, right? And I think that's what a lot of people do. Um, you know, personally, I'm sort of pescatarian. I choose not to eat meat, but I'll eat fish every now and then. And I think that's increasingly common among like people that I speak to that they're making those choices, reducing red meat for health reasons, perhaps as well, but because they know that beef production in particular is so bad for the environment. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's the same stance that Hannah Ritchie, who basically sets out this argument in a really great article on wired.co.uk, that's her stance as well. She's pescatarian and she says to people, look, if you're eating beef, why not, you know, switch that burger to tuna a couple of times a week or basically reduce your um, red meat intake and switch more of that to fish. A lot of people um, take that stance and it makes sense. But here's the problem, right? And as I alluded to earlier on, the problem is, is that switching from beef to chicken or even fish is pretty much at odds with animal welfare. So you're reducing emissions, but what you're doing in that process is you're probably condemning loads and loads more animals. We're literally talking about trillions more animals over decades to shorter, more miserable lives. So there's this really big tension between animal welfare and emissions from food. And this basically boils down to three reasons. They're, they're kind of obvious once I go through them. But first, chickens are really tiny. That's what makes them actually environmentally friendly because they're quite efficient at turning their, their feed into meat. But obviously, from a per-animal perspective, that's not very good for us because you'd have to kill 134 chickens to get the same amount of meat that you would get from one cow. So if you're changing all of your beef consumption to, to chickens, you're basically just killing a lot more animals. And Hannah ran the numbers on this and she found that globally we slaughter about 320 million cows for meat each year. And if we sourced all of that meat from chicken instead, so doing the environmentally friendly thing, switching from beef to chicken, that would mean killing an extra 41 billion animals. In the process, we would shave off around 4 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions from global emissions. That's equivalent to the emissions of the EU and UK combined. So this is a huge reduction you would make in um, emissions, but you're paying it at the price of literally uh, tens of billions or you know, 40 billion more animal deaths. You can, you can put this in terms of individual people as well. This might help make it a little bit more uh, real for our listeners. So the average person in the UK eats around 100 kilograms of meat each year. 18 kilograms of that is beef. And that is roughly a bit less than one tenth of a cow. If you replaced all of that beef, all of that one tenth of a cow with chicken, what you do is you would end up reducing your personal environmental footprint of your diet by around 30%. So a pretty big, a big chunk of your emissions from your diet. But it would mean killing an extra 10 to 15 chickens each year. I think a lot of people's opinions on this is going to come down to sort of personal morals, right? You know, obviously, a lot of meat eaters out there maybe don't think it's such a big deal to kill animals for food, whereas other people, it might be a hard ethical line that that's not okay. Um, so killing lots more animals is one thing, obviously not ideal. I think that's a terrible thing. What are the other problems with making these switches? Yeah, so... These other problems come from the lives that these animals are, are living, essentially. Um, 
and, and the life of a factory farm chicken is probably not, you know, not too surprising. It's not a great way to live. So you're packed into a cage. Often you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, fed a whole bunch. So your legs kind of uh, buckle beneath you. They don't really work. You're kind of too fat to function, really. You can't build a nest or peck on the ground, which is things that chickens love to do. So your you know, your natural um, instincts are really inhibited. And so the problem with this situation is that if we have lots more chickens, well, these are the chickens that are living some of the, these are the animals, sorry, that already live some of the worst lives. So it's not just, oh, we've got loads more animals and we're killing loads more animals. We're also killing the animals that already have the worst quality of life. It's not like, you know, for instance, cows do spend a lot of time outdoors. They have a slightly higher overall quality of life than chickens, although both of them have quite sad endings to their life, to be fair. So there's this problem that you have worse quality of life per animal alive as well. And the final thing is that there's this fundamental conflict between lowering the carbon footprint of an individual type of meat and the welfare standards of that meat. So here we can look at something like Beef, for instance. Now, beef that is farmed on factory lots where, where cows are essentially, most of the time, they're kept in constrained conditions and they're fed grain, have much lower emissions than grazed cows. Grazed cows live six to 12 months longer. They spend most of their lives out in fields where they're eating grass. And that's when most of their emissions are produced. So you might say, well, I'm only going to eat lower carbon beef, for example. But what that typically means is an animal that's had a shorter, much more horrible life. And and basically for cows, you know, those emission reductions come because they have less time to produce methane burp. So there's, there's this big conflict that if we want to also reduce the emissions from our meat often that means making reductions to the quality of lives of these animals as well so it's basically a trade-off between animal welfare and emissions and if you're choosing lower emission meat it probably means it's the animal has had lower welfare standards as well i mean the obvious way out of this plant-based meats right or even cellular meats like we're getting better and better alternatives to actual meat you can still feel like maybe you're eating something meat-ish why why don't we just do that yeah and i think you know hannah makes the point in this article and she basically says well look we've got loads of great plant-based alternatives but they perhaps don't lean into this trade-off very much they don't make the point that actually this is a better option than a beef burger or a chicken burger so if you look at you know the website of something like impossible food or even corn or beyond meat they tend to cite numbers that compare their product with beef so they say it's 95 percent less emissions or 99 nine percent uh less land and that makes sense for a beef burger i think that's probably a a reasonable comparison to make but of course the choice that people are sometimes making isn't between a beyond burger or a beef burger maybe it's a beyond burger or a chicken burger or you know some chicken nuggets or or some other meat product and the problem is is that when you start comparing plant-based meats to lower impact meats like chicken or fish Um, the environmental benefits are much smaller. In most cases, plant-based meats are still going to be uh, lower than chicken or fish, but they're nowhere near as impressive. So it's much more difficult to make this argument that people are reducing their environmental footprint if they are, for instance, switching from chicken to a Beyond Burger or switching from low-carbon fish to, you know, Beyond Sausages or something like this. And what, what Hannah kind of ends up concluding in this, in this article is that perhaps these companies need to look beyond beef to find a better sales pitch because we can actually 
you kind of see this trend happening already. So in the US and Europe, meat consumption on the whole is kind of flatlined. But what's happened is that beef consumption has dipped slightly and chicken consumption has risen. So we actually are already farming more chickens. We, we now eat more of our meat from chicken and less from beef. And really, this might lead us to a place where what we're accepting is many more animals living worse lives, even though we are reducing the you know, the carbon footprint of our diets. And one thing that perhaps companies like Beyond or Impossible Burger could say is that, hey, wait, there's also another part of this equation. If you're eating this burger, if you switch one meal, uh, you know, to you know, Beyond Meat for the next, you know, 50 weeks or whatever, that would mean 10 chickens that don't have to be killed or 10 chickens that, you know, don't live this kind of life. So, you know, basically Hannah's kind of saying there's this missed opportunity. If you concentrate too much on emissions, perhaps what you end up in is this kind of slightly ruthless world where the equation just means kill more animals, kill them more efficiently, kill them more quickly, have them grow much quicker. Um, and, And really, we're perhaps missing an opportunity to actually improve welfare standards of animals while we're also lowering our emissions. It's a really interesting one. It's almost like talking about the animal welfare issues of eating meat, which are obvious, is somehow unsexy or, you know, not something that people like to talk about. Um, And I wonder why that is. Maybe maybe it seemed maybe it's deemed more polarized. I guess, you know, no one can really argue with the fact that meat produces emissions. I think pretty much everyone understands that that's a fact now, whereas this idea of animal welfare is perhaps a bit more personal to the individual. Why, Why do you think it is, Matt? I think it's partly that companies like Beyond and Impossible have really capitalised on, you know, the environmental awareness and and this moment around climate change and, you know, use that to say, look, this is a really big issue that we can be, you know, um, switching. And and in doing so, they've managed to appeal to meat eaters and get meat eaters to switch some of their meat intake to a different, you know, to plant-based meat instead. So they've actually done something that's really, really quite remarkable because they haven't created products that are for vegetarians or for vegans. They've said, we want to concentrate on the 95% of the market that is people that all already eat meat and they've they've had a whole you know bunch of success there but i think you're right vicky they've kind of done this by slightly avoiding this animal welfare um issue it's interesting because actually a lot of the uh, people in this industry are vegan and actually do have animal welfare arguments for doing this i think they know that basically people have known for decades about the animal welfare issues it hasn't motivated them so far this is a motivator to get people to change their habits um, so let's really lean into that. So I think it's really like pragmatism on the part of, of the plant-based industry so far. I wonder if it's also to do with the fact that, I guess, if you split them into ethical vegetarians or ethical vegans and then climate-driven vegans or vegetarians, is that that's the growth area, right? Those are the people that are looking for beef alternatives. Like my mum's a vegetarian, but she's always been a vegetarian uh, for religious reasons. So she's not looking for a burger that tastes like beef, whereas I am trying to reduce my meat consumption, but I still like want to have the same experience. So I'm much more the target market for these companies rather than people that are vegetarians for ethical reasons and probably have been for a while. Yeah, that's a good point. What do the the sometime meat eaters on the on the podcast think of this? Would you be swayed to eat? I mean, are you has anyone here switched beef to a different meat source because of environmental reasons? And what do you think about the animal welfare trade off as a result? 
And you kind of can't win if you're going to decide to keep eating meat, right? So my partner and I had pretty much cut meat out of our diets. And then when we started having kids, it was quite important to us that they had a balanced diet that included meat. So meat is now a part of our diets again. But I think ultimately what Hannah lays out so well in the article and what you explained so well there, Vicky and Matt, is that if you're going to keep eating meat and at the same rates, right? And we've seen this problem around industrialization as well, right? Like, the industrialized world cut down all its forests hundreds of years ago and burnt shit tons of coal. And now we're expecting the likes of India and China to behave to different standards as they build up their economies. It's like, and the the, the, the same for meat, right? There's increased meat consumption in, in nations like China as more and more people have the, the money and the access to mass processed meats. Well, the problem just gets worse and worse and worse, right? So if more people want to eat more meat then what Hannah explains is kind of everyone keeps on losing even if the climate appears to be winning I'm not sure like for me that isn't the kind of world that it feels like we should be building like you've got to cut the meat down right um but that's not really the discussion that a lot of people are having it's oh I'm going to stop eating beef and switch to chicken um which is definitely something that we said in our household and this article kind of made me think about it in a different way Oh, yeah, and I think to add to that, actually, for me, this underlines the importance of increasing animal welfare, because if we're essentially saying, okay, it would be better if people switched 10% of their diets to chicken or 10% of their you know, beef intake to chicken, well, we need to make sure that we're having a better way of producing chicken. So we need to be better at supporting laws for free range chickens and better at improving you know, standards for cage hens. And what you end up doing is perhaps you end up increasing emissions ever so slightly, because the problem is, is when you intensify um, agriculture, actually, you, you end up reducing emissions most most of the time. So it's bad in some ways. It's actually good in some ways as well. But I think that if we're locking ourselves into this meat system, that does mean we're going to have more animals living you know, in, in this system. Well, then we need to kind of keep the pressure on raising welfare standards and not have this sense that, well, in 60 years, it's all going to go away anyway, because it's all be plant based or it'll all be cell based. You know, I think it's really important because actually, over that time span, we're talking about trillions tens of trillions of lives of animals that we can make a big difference to even if they have you know 10 percent more space or whatever it is i think the moral argument is quite a tricky one to make though because you have to bear in mind that increasing emissions will have an impact on other animals and other ecosystems so yeah you might reduce the welfare of, improve the welfare of chickens or reduce the number of chickens that get killed but if you replace uh that with more better welfare but higher emissions based meat then you're driving up temperature changes in other parts of the world maybe destroying coral reefs or having an impact on ecosystems of wild animals who will then suffer presumably an answer to this could be cell-based meat right which doesn't require the raising and slaughter of animals to create but is still actual meat but we're quite away from getting that on a large scale yeah i think that's the thing and we probably need solutions and conversations that relate to the changes we're having now so i think amit's point is really interesting but it depends how you value the individual animal experience versus the diversity of animals so is it worse for 10 billion chickens to die than you know populations across a set of animals to be reduced by one percent if we're just looking at the raw numbers it's something ridiculous like you know, 85% of all animal biomass is farmed animals. There are many, many, many more chickens that live lives than there are wild animals. So if you are saying, I just want the most animals to have the best lives, 
then probably you want to concentrate more on chickens. If you are interested in conserving biodiversity, then yeah, you're right. Then maybe we need to think more about, well, what's that trade-off in terms of land use or uh, ocean acidification? But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because maybe you end up saying, well, I will save nice-looking tigers at the cost of billions of chickens, and they're not easy equations to, to like, make work. Let's throw it out to the listeners, podcast at wired.co.uk. This sounds like the kind of conversation that a lot of people are having either in their groups of friends or as individual households, like ditching beef for chicken or working out what kind of diet you want to have as a, as a family. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. For our second story this week, I'm going to need a whole lot of help because even though I know what it is, I have no idea what it is. I'm just going to say the name of it and then, Natasha, it's over to you. Squid Game. (laughs) Thank you, James. Um, For those listeners who haven't been watching it, it's not about squid and it's not a game. Um, It's actually a South Korean thriller which is dominating Netflix. It's the most popular show on there, pushed off Bridgerton for the top spot uh, quite recently. And it's a story of some 490, no, 456 desperate people who are completely bankrupt, who compete for a huge jackpot, more money than any of them could ever imagine, by killing each other in a series of games um, that are made for children. So sort of their, their childhood games turned into sort of macabre, um, disgusting, horrendous, battle royale-style killing. Um, and Matt Burgess has the story of why everyone seems to love it so much. Yeah, thanks, Natasha. And just to point out, this is not going to be, this conversation is not going to have any spoilers for anybody who is uh, just starting Squid Game or anything like that. We're talking uh, a lot more about the success of the show in general. And its viral success isn't one that is actually a one-off. It's an indicator of a growing demand for more international shows from streaming services, which won't just reshape the future of television, but also pose some major questions for how the industry operates altogether. A few years ago, local content was used by Netflix to attract a lot more eyeballs and get a lot more people signing up in individual countries. So people want to watch shows in their own local languages about their cultures with local stars. However, on a platform such as Netflix, those shows can go global if they're given the right subtitling, uh, dubbing, audience and exposure. And in the last two years, uh, Netflix's uh, head of global TV, Bella Bajaria, says that they have seen a breakout of non-English language titles. In the US alone, uh, 97% of subscribers watched at least one non-English language title in the last year. It's interesting because for a long, long time, there was that presupposition that people who are native English language speakers don't like to read subtitles and don't feel engaged with content that they don't understand. That's why the dubbing industry was such a huge industry and why subtitles haven't really been pushed so much. But but this is, this is a really interesting scenario because it's basically proven that pr- supposition completely wrong. What has changed to allow Squid Game to be so successful now? 
there's a few different factors really that mean uh, and have led to sort of Squid Game itself going viral. Um, in short, a lot of it comes down to money, how that money is invested, and also uh, the platform's desire for more content and more shows in general. So uh, industry analysts that we spoke to said that a lot of streaming services have been working on a lot of international content for quite a while now, quite a few years. Uh, there's just not been that many breakouts on the scale of Squid Game. So the shows are out there, but they maybe haven't uh, gone quite so prominently in terms of uh, their exposure and their viewers. And it isn't to say that the shows haven't been popular at all. Um, So since 2018, the majority of Netflix's original scripted TV shows have been in a language other than English. Uh, And in 2020 and 2021, that figure hit 55% of shows. Um, And seamlessly offering foreign TV shows and films uh, released simultaneously worldwide means that uh, these types of shows can get a lot more exposure, a lot more viewers. um, And with Squid Game in particular, this has helped it to skyrocket in popularity. In the last two years, foreign language shows such as Money Highs, Kingdom and Dark have drawn in huge worldwide audiences for Netflix. Uh, And that's not mentioning Lupin, which Netflix says was viewed by 70 million households uh, worldwide since it debuted in January. It's interesting that you mentioned those um, series because a lot of them are based in Europe and obviously the European Commission uh, played a big hand in forcing Netflix to commission a certain percentage of its content in native um, languages in Europe. But um, one of the things that keeps on circulating, especially given the success of Squid Game, is is that concept that Huang Dong-yuk, who was the um, writer and director of, of the series, struggled to actually get anyone to want to be interested in, in it at all. He had apparently spent years trying to get studios to make his um, his show at one point declaring himself bankrupt, people were saying. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting kind of story here. What, when you talk about money and you talk about investment, Netflix is obviously one of the bigger players in this space. How much money is it spending on making shows like this successful and going from someone who couldn't get the door open in a lot of studios to being number one in streaming? Yeah, I think it was uh, he spent more than sort of 10 years or he wrote the original script sort of like 10 years ago. And then it's obviously been trying to sell it around uh, since then. But obviously Netflix has got huge... um hugely deep pockets it's one of the biggest sort of tech companies that exists and, and definitely the biggest obviously in the streaming space as well and it's using that money to invest uh, and build offices and studios and and productions uh, in different countries all around the world really um just we could do a very long list of all the places and all the money that it's investing but just to give you a flavor there's 500 million of content and office investment happening in germany uh, there's 200 million euros of investment in italy uh, and 300 million dollars of investment in mexico and the list as i say sort of goes on um, and on top of that netflix is aiming to break away um by making a lot more sort of original anime content as well and also uh, announcing a lot of partnerships and new studios that it's helping to uh, create uh, in that space. Um, And Netflix's biggest plans really are in India at the moment. So currently Netflix is estimated to only have 5 million subscribers in the country with Amazon Prime uh, on around 17 million and Disney Plus Hotstar, which is a sort of joint venture between Disney and a local company, has around 34 million subscribers. Uh, And to try and match its competitors in the region, 
and Netflix has promised at least uh, to invest at least 400 million in the coming years there uh, while producing 41 original Indian productions in 2021 alone. And also the analysts that we were speaking to were saying that actually while this uh, content is obviously very good for Indian viewers as well, it's also very popular in a lot of uh, other Asian countries as well. So um, of the 52 million uh potential new subscribers that are being predicted uh, for Netflix to gain by sort of the mid 2020s uh, around 19 million of those are predicted to come from uh, the Asia Pacific region so it's a huge area for growth and that type of investment is really just to try and get a lot of new subscribers in places where Netflix isn't as big as it is in the US because in the US I think it's got almost sort of uh, nearly complete penetration in terms of the market everybody subscribes to it and um, elsewhere the growth for Netflix as a business is going to come internationally. It's really interesting because it's a lot of money trying to attract a lot more subscribers. And one of the things that, that made Squid Game success so interesting is that you've got characters from a culture that, you know, is, is, is very alien to a lot of people um, playing games that a lot of people will not have heard of <laughs> or played themselves, um, you, you know, in a situation that, that a lot of people would not really understand. And, and giving cultural references that, that obviously aren't familiar to a lot of people that, that might have been watching. But it, it shows a bit of a, a change in audience taste, right? They're interested in seeing content that might not apply to their lives, but is is very, very interesting. And, and in fact, seems to be sort of trend now for people to reference it almost as sort of a meta kind of version of stuff but I mean how do you think seeing that we've had several examples of of shows like Squid Game that have been very successful what do you think this is going to mean for like future shows and the way things are going to progress from now on are we going to see a lot more original kind of local TV shows coming to the fore and being pushed out by Netflix um, as sort of prime TV yeah, that's definitely going to be the way that things go. And also on the industry itself, it has quite a big impact as well. So um, take Israel, for example, sort of historically, the country has created a huge uh, array of original TV shows that end up becoming the basis for popular English remakes, such as uh, Homeland or Your Honor. Um, and this year, Apple TV Plus bought the rights to an Israeli programming, uh, such as Tehran and Losing Alice. It's bought a couple of uh, shows and things that it's doing but it's not remaking these shows crucially for an English language uh, audience it's producing them in their original form so it's changing how that uh, that side of the industry is working and where things are being made as well there was a point I think you might have made it to me actually Matt because I've spoken to about Squid Games basically everyone I was at an evening event yesterday and people talking about Squid Game but I think it was you who told me that you saw some children playing green light red light is that right yeah it's- Oh, yeah, that was, what me. It was. Yeah, <laughs> just on on their way on their way to school, just a couple of kids just playing uh, playing the game, just as they were, uh, yeah, just in the morning on the way to school. Yeah, so it's like the uh, for everyone who doesn't know the game, uh, hasn't watched the show, it's in the first episode. It's sort of like what's the time, Mister Wolf? I think would be the equivalent in in the UK. Sort of you turn around, and if someone's moving, that they're, they're out. Only in this scenario, they're, they're shot to death. So um, there's, there's, it's just it's quite strange, right? When you hear, especially at the moment on Twitter, a lot of people saying oh you know schools are telling parents don't let your kids watch squid game um they're sort of gathering children in assemblies and saying don't watch squid game and of course kids are like i want to watch squid game (laughs) so so it feels like there might be quite a lot of people in very random places in the world that might be playing games that are traditional south korean ones which is which is quite interesting but on on the storyline, I mean, everyone knows about Battle Royale. It isn't necessarily a, a new concept 
why do you think that it went viral in the way that it did? Why do you think we're all so obsessed with Squid Game? I guess there's uh, probably different, a few different elements to it. It's obviously compared to uh, some of the other um, locally produced content from around the world. This is something that is quite compelling and intense and obviously is it, good and watchable for people. So there's that side of things that have made it um, a success that way. But also, obviously, Netflix has pushed it quite hard. It's been at the top of its um, of its viewing uh, programming guide when you, when you basically log in. It's been at the top of there. So a lot of people have seen it that way. Um, and that type of thing is obviously something that it's going to be repeating uh, throughout its sort of life cycle of the show. Um, and really, I guess it's just worth saying as well that there is a big risk to companies trying to replicate the success of this um, because essentially streaming services, they love data. They can get a lot of granular information on who's watching what and uh, how much of it they're watching. So if you started a 20-minute show at sort of 10, 11 p.m. on your phone, uh, it can... It, streaming services can obviously understand this is the type of content you're watching at this time. They might be able to draw sort of contextual references around this. You might be going to bed if you're watching it on your phone in bed, or you might be in bed or something like that. And uh, essentially, it means that certain shows and movies will be pushed to at different times based on where you are. And there's a lot of sort of like science and understanding behavior behind that side of things. But when it comes to sort of commissioning new shows, trying to commission something to go viral like Squid Game is very difficult. There's not really a formula to doing so you can take a lot of algorithmic uh, or checklist things that you think will make a show be very successful have big stars have various plot points or compelling parts of storylines but just throwing them all together and doing it based on the data isn't something that is uh, guaranteed for success so uh, for instance uh, men in black international uh, was panned by critics after the sort of the dialogue and scripts were simplified to make them easier to dub for foreign audiences so just trying to apply that sort of approach of making something something glow go viral globally isn't something that you can just do with uh, a, a tick of a box essentially and sort of netflix isn't immune to such criticism as well and it's been accused of creating shows to appeal to a broad audience as possible and creating content that's based on sort of algorithms rather than sort of cultures and that is one of the sort of really big challenges i guess for the industry going forward around this in terms of how um they uh, commission shows with this view of taking something from a local culture and trying to make it uh, something that everybody around the world wants to watch. Um, but yeah, in terms of the specifics of why that uh, one show uh, has gone a lot more viral than others, I guess, and for people that have seen it here, it's because people like it and it's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you told me to watch it, so I did. And um, it is, it's just quite easy viewing, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of kind of, you know, bright colours, um, a lot of action a lot of kind of there's a thriller element to it you know and, and you're right a lot of the people that were in it were relatively unknown outside of sort of South Korean movies and shows and so you felt like there wasn't sort of an obvious you know how it is especially in in sort of horror films as well as there'll be like one famous person you're like oh that person will survive because I've seen them in like CSI Miami or whatever so like they're mildly mildly famous so I'm sure they'll survive at least one episode or whatever you know that that didn't happen here there wasn't like an obvious oh this person's definitely going to do okay it felt very much like any of them could you know die at any moment so it was it was quite quite interesting viewing and there were a few twists I didn't see coming and so it was it was it was good and I, I don't think I don't think it detracted like the fact that you don't really understand 
why what people are playing because they didn't really know either that was part of the plot right they, they didn't really understand what games they might be playing or what might come next so it was sort of like you were discovering it with them um which was which was nice but yeah i suppose if we were playing this game on this podcast i don't know who would win but i'm kind of interested in seeing what you think i think james would win Matt Reynolds could win, but I think he would anger the wrong person and end up dead. <laughs> so, um, go on, Matt Reynolds, who do you think would win? So I think, I just say, I am personally sad to be losing Vicky from the team, but glad, because <laughs> I think she might win, which obviously means the death of all of us, most importantly me. Because I, I think what Vicky has is she'll know the right person to form an allegiance with, get them on side and you know what once they're done, it's done. that's it yeah. then she can lone wolf it for the very final stages so i think <laughs> what, she's what got are you both saying that... about my personality there <laughs> i'm saying I'm you're just gonna stab <laughs> you in the back <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know you're nice at the beginning no i'm just saying that i think she has the emotional intelligence to play that part of the game whereas yeah i mean i i don't rate my own chances at all I, I would back natasha actually because i think natasha would sort of find the loophole that somehow manages to to save herself or get through the game you know she's the one who's going to be um I don't know getting some intel in what's coming or sneakily hiding behind someone else or something like that I think that I think Natasha would would uh play the game rather than playing the game yeah the interesting thing about the show is that none of them seem to know what battle royale was (laughs) so (laughs) I guess I have that in my favor I have a bit of background but no I think I would um I would fall and die in some ridiculous manner probably not even part of the game james go on who do you think um well i mean i i, I haven't seen the show so i'm i'm uh, i'm gonna wrap this up and move us on uh but what i would like uh is for anybody <laughs> listening to send in their nominations for who out of the podcast team and you can pick any of the six of us uh you think would win i'm especially interested in nominations for matt burgess uh, so you, if you'd like to explain how Matt Burgess would win Squid Game, podcast at wired.co.uk, or if you've got a case to make for any of us, get in touch. And if you want to write in about anything else on the show this week or in previous weeks, you can find us podcast at wired.co.uk. We've got a couple of emails to go through before we wrap up for this week. I'll take the first one. It's from Neymar who writes in about his pandemic experience in Portugal, which is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. He says that one thing Portugal has done right is to keep politics away from the vaccination drive. So he writes that the Portuguese government decided to nominate the military to conduct the vaccination program. He goes on to say that he thinks it's a good idea um, to nominate the military and military people as they created a wider sense of unity among the population. This approach, he goes on, effectively drafted the whole country into one collective pandemic fighting force. So things that happened during the vaccination program, the Admiral wore his combat uniform in all public appearances, the idea being that, you know, you can get everybody on side. And it looks like it's worked pretty well. Roughly 98% of Portugal's eligible population is fully vaccinated. One more email. And, oh no, yep, Amit, go on. I just want to say that that's the opposite of keeping politics away from the vaccination drive. Like, the literal opposite, isn't it? It's it's tying vaccination up with nationalism and... and uh, positioning the country as sort of a fighting force against it it's great that it worked and it it seems like you know i'm not opposed to it in principle but i don't think it counts as keeping politics away from it 
maybe the point is like keeping politicians mm. away from yeah. it rather than politics and like having a different so let's say in the uk your reason to get a jab early on might have been because matt hancock told you to some people might not have found that particularly inspiring whereas if they had a colonel standing up in full military regalia, then they might have a different approach. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it, but you can't argue with 98% of your eligible population being fully vaccinated. Good numbers. Uh, all right. Uh, final email. Amit, you've got one. Yes. Uh, Liam from Scotland wrote in about the Facebook, WhatsApp, Messenger outage um, last week. He was um, on his way to meet someone from Marketplace, Facebook Marketplace, and had sent them some messages on Facebook Messenger to slightly change the time, but everything cut out, which left him turning up late without warning, uh, which is just one of the knock-on effects of having several services on the same platform. And we talked before about how, you know, the way Facebook operates sort of exacerbated that problem by, you know, switching off their door locks and things like that, as well as the the service that the websites run on. He, uh, Liam thinks that, it made him think about communication being so reliant on Facebook. Half his family live abroad and they used to talk uh, over the landline at weekends and evenings because it was cheaper, but now they use WhatsApp to help people stay in touch. But he thinks Facebook's gotten too big and it should be split up. And the only way for that to work is to split it into companies that are completely independent of each other, um, which I guess would have solved the the outage. But I, th- I guess in reality, there's always going to be one dominant messaging service. And, you know... Everyone was kind of saying during the outage, oh, well, if you had Signal, then this wouldn't happen. But the the truth is the majority of people aren't going to maintain separate WhatsApp and Signal accounts that they're going to use equally. So there's always going to be a a dominant player. And it just so happened that in this case, it was Facebook. Thanks very much for your emails, Liam and Neymar, and to everyone else that wrote in this week. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show. Vicky, can I leave the final word to you? You, uh, If you want to sing us out on your last podcast. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't know what to say. There's nothing in the script, James. <laughs> um, no, it's been a pleasure to be on the Wired podcast, especially uh, with all my lovely colleagues. Um, and I've loved hearing from listeners uh, who have, you know, tweeted at me, written in, sometimes even accosted me at live events. Um, so thanks so much. Very sad to be leaving. And I'll, I'll become a listener myself. Maybe I'll even uh, email in some feedback every now and then. Please do. Thanks very much, Vicky. It's been absolutely wonderful working with you. It's been amazing having you on the podcast. We will miss you very much. And thanks very much to everybody for listening. That's it for this week. And that's it from Vicky forever. Cheers for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.